Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We welcome you to another in our series of Grace Stories. Our story today, I think, will be very fascinating to you. In fact, it's in book form. We'll talk about the book, but... um, Greg Steer hails from Colorado, grew up there in the Denver area, and uh, he tells his story in his book called Unlikely Fighter, and it it is a riveting read, very interesting. You won't believe half the things that you read in that book, I think, (laughs) but uh, we're happy to welcome Greg to the podcast today so he can tell some of that story to us. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, Charlie. Thanks for letting me on your podcast. Hey, privilege privilege. Uh, We did one earlier when we talked about the book Simply by Grace, but uh, this is your story today. Um, And so you did grow up in the Denver area, right? Yeah, I grew up in North Denver, which at the time, now it's been gentrified, but uh, at the time it was the highest crime rate area in our city. And my family had something to do with that crime rate. My family were where I always say, you know, uh, three of my uncles were competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver. The fifth one was a Golden Gloves boxer, judo champion, war hero that had five bullet wounds and a five-inch bayonet scar. He not only survived, he killed the guy that gave it to him. So um, and my mom was the only girl in the group, and they were all afraid of her. And the, the Denver Mafia, the Smalldowns, nicknamed my uncles the Crazy Brothers so when the mafia thinks your family's dysfunctional, that's not good. So my family was very dangerous and very big. Uh, they were, like I said, competitive bodybuilders. and But they, they worked out for maximum punching impact. Mm. And they just loved to fight. That was their thing. They wanted that. They were like a gang. And yeah. Five um, brothers, uncles. Yep, my uncles and 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 my mom. She was part yeah. of the gang too. Well, your your and, mom's uh, a fascinating character. Can you paint a portrait for us about her? Yeah. Now, my mom was, uh, you know, she was a tough lady. My most vivid memory of her was when I was five years old, and she had been married several times. One of the guys she had been married to left us abruptly. We had no idea where he was. Pulled up one day in a brand new car. And I was playing on the porch with a little plastic bat. I'll never forget. I, I yelled inside when I saw him sitting in the brand new car. Mommy, mommy, one of my daddies is here. And she looked out the window. She was smoking a cigarette, doing the dishes. And she cursed like a sailor, and asked where the baseball bat was. And I tried to give her my plastic bat, but she wanted the Louisville slugger, hmm. grabbed it, ran outside, cigarette still hanging out of her mouth while Paul was sitting in the car. And uh, he should have drove off before she got there, but she shattered his front windshield and she taunted him, get out of the car. I'm just a girl. Then she took out his headlights, took off his side view mirror. And finally she started doing body damage on the car. I mean, and he made a tactical mistake. He got out of the car Mm. and uh, she beat him bloody. Finally got back in the car, drove off, never saw him again, obviously. And I'll never get my mom walking back up that sidewalk with his broken, bloodied, splintered bat, uh, thinking to myself three things. Number one is I'll never disobey my mommy again. Mm-hmm. Number two, how did this cigarette stay in her mouth the whole time? And number three, why is my mom so angry? 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, I found out years later, she had a shame fueled rage um, that was bursting inside of her and it often burst out. And then having said that she was, she actually was a great mom. She was mm-hmm. the ultimate mama bear. She protected us. She cried every night because she didn't want us to turn out like her, me and my brother. She um, worked double shifts. She did everything she could because she she used to cry at night and say, I don't want you to be a bum like me. And mm-hmm. I remember as a kid just putting my hand, you know, patting her on the back saying, Mom, you're not a bum and we're not, we won't be bums. And but she had a lot of guilt and a lot of rage and a lot of confusion and, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of men were in her life. I was a result of one of those relationships. I never knew my biological father. Mom met my biological father at a party. They partied. She got pregnant. He found out he got transferred 2,000 miles away. And uh, so never met my biological father. She, I found out when I was 12, she drove from Denver to Boston to have an illegal abortion. This is before Roe v. Wade. And she was staying with my Uncle Tommy and Aunt Carol. My Uncle Tommy was uh, in the Navy, a minesweeper. Mm-hmm. and had put his faith in Christ, actually. And he, he actually, he and my Aunt Carol talked her out of having an abortion. And which so was she you. Came back and, yeah, which was me. And so she would, you know, I again, I always wondered, look at why we, she would look at me. Sometimes she would just burst out into tears. And I found out years later when I was 12 from my grandma, it's because she almost aborted me. Yeah. And she felt so guilty, so guilty. Yeah. Sometimes we have to give a lot of grace to our parents and how they treated us and treated others because we don't know how they were raised themselves. I imagine your mom exactly. had a clear of trials and troubles when she was raised as well. Oh so, yeah. So, um, and your uncles, uh, they, they just like to street fight. Yeah. I mean, my uncle, uh, Dave golden gloves, boxer, judo champion. So he, he loved to fight. He wasn't a bodybuilder. He didn't need to be. He could just knock you out with one punch. My uncle Bob, 6'3", 250, bouncer. He was more of a power lifter than a bodybuilder. And uh, literally beat a guy to death one time uh, in a in a street fight. Uh, the guy had stabbed his best friend, Doug Johnson, five times, and he beat him to death. And thank the Lord that EMTs were able to eventually revive the guy. And uh, so he thought he was going to go to jail for the rest of his life. Uncle Jack, who was the toughest one of them all, he was looks like the Wolverine, big lamb chop sideburns, tattoos everywhere, talk like this, you know. <laughs> uh, he used to drink two, have two beer cans, one for drinking beer, one for spitting chew, and uh, he he was in and out of jail his whole life. Once for choking two cops unconscious at the same time, they were trying to arrest him on assault charges. So, uh. very dangerous man, and uh, you know, so the the family was. You know, and I, I was not that way. I was like young Sheldon in the hood. I was a nerdy little quiet kid that carried the dictionary. And uh, I hid underneath the kitchen sink with a Bible and a flashlight trying to figure out, you know, the answers. And and I was they had no violent, not one violent bone in my body. And I was terrified of my neighborhood because my neighborhood was gang infested. I was ter- terrified of my family. Because they were just loud and bloody and violent, and no, no violence toward me. Yeah, but I was just—I was just afraid, you know, yeah. a terrified kid. Well, where do you think that came from? Your curiosity about the Bible in your early life. Well, my grandparents were Christians, so my 
grandpa and grandma went to Bethany Baptist Church in downtown Denver, North Denver, actually North Denver. And uh, all their kids, except for Tommy, uh, had rebelled. Um, and so they they took me and my brother to church with them. I actually think they felt guilty uh, that their kids had all turned out, and you know, mostly turned out, you know, like this gang. Mm. And uh, my grandma was, my grandpa had almost an impossible standard of strength he could take two one he loaded trucks for a living and drove them he's the only guy that in his in the whole mill that could take two 100 pound sacks of flour one in each hand flip them on his back mm. he went on each shoulder and climb up and load a tree he did that all day every day his hands were so big they look like the, you know those halloween hulk hands they yeah. look like that he couldn't he couldn't put a there no rings fit his hands mm. and so i think he even though he never worked out, he was stronger than all my uncles. And I think he had an impossible like standard of strength. And my grandma had almost an impossible standard of toughness. She was a typical grandma in many ways, but she carried a 357 Magnum. <laughs> uh, she had, she had gum and a gun in her purse and she would use it. Um, they might, even though they were Baptists, they were, you know, they were not pacifists, <laughs> they, they, you know, and uh, so I think Baptist. my uncle, yeah, my uncles were always trying to live up to that. And in a sense, my family rebelled against all that, the, the Baptist upbringing. And so a lot of my uncles just figured, hey, I'm going to hell. I'm just going to live it up before I get there and, you know, like, you know, run hard in the other direction. And uh, so it was, yeah, it was. So my, my grandparents took to me and my brother to Bethany Baptist Church. Um, so. Okay. So your, your, your uncles, though, um, they they didn't have much of an interest in spiritual things or they didn't think they could live up to what the church expected of them or they just didn't understand the gospel yeah i think that i think is yeah all of that um and so one day uh there was a hillbilly preacher uh whose nickname for whatever reason was yankee and yankee you know he was nicknamed yankee because his daddy was a counterfeiter and a moonshiner in the backwoods of Georgia. And he was born on the run from the law in Pennsylvania. So his dad nicknamed him blank Yankee. I won't fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, and Yankee just kept that title Yankee. And uh, this hillbilly preacher nicknamed Yankee planted a church in the suburbs of Denver. And there was a guy named Bob Daly who went to his church, who knew my whole family was raised with him in North Denver but we really was too afraid to share the gospel with my family. So he dared Yankee and Yankee, as you know, you know, Yankee is yeah, fearless yeah. and went on a Saturday morning to my uncle Jack's house. That uncle Jack is the one that choked two cops unconscious, knocked on his door. My uncle Jack came to the door, no shirt on tats everywhere, two beer cans, the whole thing irritated. Somebody bothered him on a Saturday morning, his day off work. And, uh, but Yankee had a he had an ace up his sleeve. Jack's daughters, Tammy and Jackie, who are my cousins, had actually been going to youth group at Yankee's church. Mm -hmm. So he said, "I'm Pastor uh, Yankee Arnold. Uh, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly, but I also want you to know, your two daughters go to my youth group, and there's two of the sweetest kids on the planet. I love your daughters." And that was that was the way in okay. uh, to Jack's heart. 
And so he goes, and he goes, I'm, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. And my uncle Jack talked like this. He goes, well, I don't know. I don't know Jesus. I know Jack. I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> and he, Yankee, took that five minutes and explained the clear gospel of grace that God loves us, but our sins separate us from God. The good deeds can never remove, you know, remove our sin. So we're condemned to help, but God sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life we could never live and to die in our place, taking our sin upon himself uh, and rising again from the dead. He used a, what he you know calls a hand gesture. So it's an illustration with a wallet. Right. I, I actually trained that same to illustration to teenagers using their phones. But Jesus took our sin upon himself. He rose from the dead and everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And that life starts now and lasts forever. And it's not by trying. It's not by committing. It's not by surrendering. It's by re- receiving through simple faith uh, the free gift of eternal life, That believing that Christ died in your place for your sin. Well, it was mm-hmm. so simple and so clear. Mm-hmm. That, you know, my Uncle Jack just thought, you know, well, I'm going to hell. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm just going to live it up. He never realized salvation was a free gift through faith alone. Mm-hmm. And Yankee said, "Does that make sense?" And Michael Jack said, "Hell yeah, that was a sinner's prayer." Was hell yeah, <laughs> that was a sinner's prayer. And <laughs> he trusted Christ and immediately dove into Scripture. He brought two hundred and fifty people out to Yankee's church in one month. One month, mm. bodybuilders, street fighters, gang members, and then you know it began to it began to you know just go throughout the entire family because Jack was the he was the kingpin. You know, he was the, he was the, the toughest guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And after he came to Christ, it was just, you know, a matter of time. So I was a kid and I watched this radical transformation, wonder what in the world is going on. You know, this so is you're, awesome. You're, yeah. That he had a radical transformation. And what about your uh, other uncles, his brothers? So my uncle Bob, he had actually understood the gospel as a kid. Um, but he had just totally turned his back on God. He got in a um, in that that fist fight, you know, that turned that the guy had stabbed his friend mm. at the Silver Dollar Bar and Grill while he beat the guy to death in the back of the squad car after they arrested him. He's covered in blood. He sees the EMTs working on this guy and taking him into the ambulance. He thinks I just killed a man, so he called out to God, God, if they resuscitate him, I'm all in to serve you because he had as a kid he had just put his faith in christ but it you know rebelled mm-hmm. and he in the back of that squad car he went all in um to follow christ a year later he was at florida bible college wow. and uh that's where he met his wife and at florida bible college is where yankee graduated from and it yeah. was a clear clear gospel school mm-hmm. so yeah he trusted christ you know i mean just Various circumstances, one by one, my my uncles came to Christ. My uncle Richard was the last one to come to Christ, and uh, when I was an adult, actually, he was holding out for many many years. But he got stage four cancer, and by this time, all my uncles had come to Christ except for him. And my mom had come to Christ, and uh, they talked him into coming to the last, you know, to one last church service. Where they could hear their little nephew preach. That was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was past. I was pastoring a church called Grace Church up here, a church that me and my buddy had planted. And uh, 
in that service. I always give the gospel, always give an invitation, always challenge pastors, give the gospel, give an invitation, every yeah. service, just give people an opportunity to respond. And he, he and his wife, uh, both indicated faith in Christ. And three months later, he went to be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And in that three months, he led more people to Christ than most pastors did their entire life. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, how about let's go back to your mom. What uh, What's her story? How did that end up? So, Ma, you know, she, you know, I, I'd seen all this transformation. I'd come to Christ at actually the Bethany Baptist Church. Uh, I, I'll, you'll, you'll find this story interesting. Uh, so I was at this Baptist church my grandparents took me at, and I was confused by the gospel. Like, they'd say, okay, confess all your sin. You got to confess you're a sinner if you want to be saved. So I, I remember confessing all my sins a thousand times. And then I would think through in my mind of any other sins. And then once I got done, I would curse in my mind, you know, and then I would say, oh, I confess that and I'd curse. And I thought if I died between the cursing and the confession, I'd go straight to hell. So I was just, you know, a little OCD kid. And then they said, well, you have to ask Jesus in your heart to be saved. So I remember my Sunday school teacher asked, you know, ask Jesus in your heart. And I was like, come into my heart, Jesus. Are you there over? You know, I was like. You know, knock three times on my pancreas if you made it. I thought if I cough too hard, there goes Jesus. I thought if I got a heart transplant, I'm going straight to hell because I took Jesus with them. And I just was confused by that terminology. Mm-hmm. But it was time to get baptized because I'd asked Jesus a thousand times in my heart, right? So uh, I told my grandpa, I want to get baptized. So we did the altar call that Sunday after service and Pastor Claude Pettit, on June 23rd, 1974, in front of the congregation at Bethany Baptist Church, it was probably average age 80. He was an old church. Yeah. He's like, before you get baptized, you're going to be a Christian. That means you believe Jesus died for you on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that you're trusting in him alone to save you from your sins. Well, that was the first time I really heard it clearly. Really? He goes, have you done that? And in my mind, I said, I trust you, Jesus. And I go, yes. <laughs> he didn't know. He just led me to Christ. The first thing I did after telling my grandma is I went back to Mrs. Muirhead and I said, hey, all this ask Jesus in your heart stuff and confess your sins stuff doesn't make sense to us kids. You got to preach the cross. And did you really Jesus. say that to her? How old I, were you? I, I honestly, I was eight. Eight years old. Because I was confused for a couple years of what it means to be saved. And I did everything these. And so I went, she just looked at me like I was crazy, but I was like, from that moment, I became a grace guy. I was eight. I was a grace kid because, uh, and that's something super important to me. So anyways, I get saved, you know, all before, during, and after this, you know, my family is being transformed by the power of the gospel. My mom is a holdout. So mm-hmm. I go to Yankees church. I start going to his youth group. Well, he trains us all how to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, the you know, it says, who are you going to tell? Well, the first person on my mind in my heart is my mom. So I go back when I'm like 12 and I remember sitting at the kitchen table and I'm, I'm using the wallet illustration, you know, that Yankee uses to explain. And she's smoking a cigarette and she goes, you don't know the things I've done wrong. Well, I knew them all because by that time, my grandma had told me everything. But she didn't know that I knew. I go, it doesn't matter, Ma. Jesus nailed it all to the cross. So literally, I kept sharing Christ with her and my brother, too, at the time I was 12 to the time I was 15. Mm-hmm. Finally, I just sat her down when I was 15. I go, Ma, I don't want you to go to hell. And you kind of got to just be blunt with my family. 
and uh, laid the gospel out again. And she's smoking a cigarette. She's like, you mean to tell me all I got to do is put my faith in Christ and he forgives me for everything? I go, yeah. She goes, you mean to tell me you've died for all my sins? I go, yeah. She goes, what about the bad ones? I go, they're all bad. And they're all nailed to the cross. That's why I said it is finished. Price has, price has been paid. She took a drag from her cigarette and she goes, I'm in. I believe. And I'm, when my family said they're in, they're in. So she put her faith in Christ and Ma worked double shifts to send me to a Christian school. That was even before she got saved. She hmm. she uh she wanted me to be a preacher because she knew I wanted to be one. And and um, you know, she went to be with the Lord almost 20 years ago now. And uh people ask me, you know. You know, how's your mod doing? The ones that didn't know she died, I go, she's doing great. She stopped smoking, best shape of her life, singing all the time, day and night. Yeah. She's dead. Amen. And she's more alive than ever. So, yeah, it's it, I had the privilege of leading my mom to Christ. That was one of the greatest days of my life. Yeah, that's great. I think your story also shows that there's no, there's no canned approach. I mean, you do train people to share the gospel in certain ways, but when it comes to how people respond, there's no canned approach approach of the, as far as their response is concerned i'm in or hell yeah <laughs> can be, yeah can i'm be in hell yeah prayer. whatever yeah well i don't know where the sinner's prayer is in the bible anyway so i guess those are as good as anything so you know it's funny because i it's funny because you know there's there's i i wrote an article called the bigfoot of the bible and it's about the sinner's prayer because you don't ever see the sinner's prayer at the same time i often lead people through a prayer but i tell them this prayer doesn't save you it's it's a it's it's a way for you to thank God uh, for the gift of eternal life He's just given you. It's your faith in Christ that saves you. Right. But I think sometimes people like them, you know, to say that prayer is kind of a like a you know nailing point. I'm telling yeah. God, thank you for that gift. You know, kind yeah. of stake in the ground moment. So, but you've got to make sure that they understand that prayer doesn't save them. God, I, I I tell people there's going to be a lot of people in hell who said this sinner's prayer but never put their faith in Christ, and there's going to be a lot of people in heaven. Who never said the sinner's prayer, but put their faith in Christ. That's a good point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah I, I like to uh, lead people in a prayer of thanksgiving. I think the more that they can express their faith in some ways, the more uh, it confirms to them what's happened, I think. but Exactly. Yeah. Just like that's what baptism, I think, does. It doesn't save us, but it does confirm and uh, what we're doing. So, so how did your... Uh, ministry evolved to where you really got a heart for uh, sharing the gospel, especially with young people. Well, Yankee, I'm going to blame it all on Yankee, this hillbilly preacher, because here he reaches my family. Well, I ended up going to his youth group, his Christian school. There was probably about 300 adults at the church when it was at its height. There was 800 teenagers in the youth group at one point. So Yankee believed that the fastest way to reach a city was through the youth. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stuck. I mean, I saw it. Every Thursday night, we would do what would they called Christian Youth Ranch, mm-hmm. which sounds like it sounds like a reformed home or something like that. But it's it was a youth group meeting. <laughs> and they did games. They did all the crazy stuff. But he would sit up with his Bible for 45 minutes and talk about prophecy and talk about heaven talk about hell talk about the cross he'd always give the gospel always give an invitation i never i never remember one night in youth group where somebody didn't put their faith in christ so people came to christ all the time because kids were trained and equipped to bring their friends 
but not just bring their friends. We were trying to have the gospel conversation. So he equipped us to reach our neighborhood friends. And our uh, if they went to public schools, you know, they looked at him like federally funded missionaries. You know, they'd send them into the schools to share Christ. Every Friday night, we would go out and do Friday night soul winning. Mm-hmm. And we would go to local malls and share Christ. And fi- between 50 to 100 of us, it was a large group of us wow. that did that. And so this evangelism training and equipping and mobilization was embedded into me. And I saw the impact uh, in my family and I saw the impact in our youth group. So when I was 15, I went to Yankee and I was like, Yankee, we should, you know, we should train other churches how to do this. And, you know, here's this 15 year old kid coming up to him, (laughs) telling him what he should do. Well, he's running a Christian school, a college, a church, a Sunday school ministry. He's busy. He's like, no, I, you know, can't do that. Well, I was like, I'm going to do it. So I got on the phone, started calling churches in the area, got to hold a community Baptist church in Arvada, about a couple miles away from where Yankees church was, Colorado Bible church. And uh, asked for the youth pastor, Clay Stone, didn't know me from Adam. And I explained who I was. And, you know, I'm a part of a youth group. I want to train his youth group how to share the gospel. And he goes, how old are you? I go, I'm 15. Hmm. He goes, you could almost feel the smile on his face through the phone. And he's like, what are you doing Wednesday night? I go, I'm riding my bike to a youth group, training him to share the gospel. And I did. So I call that the unofficial start of Dare to Share. You know, I've been riding my bike ever since. Now, now I take planes usually, uh, <laughs> drive. But uh, yeah, that that vision, because teens come to Christ quicker and spread the gospel faster than adults. Okay. So I'm like, 80%, something like 80% of those that come to Christ do it by the time they're 18. I'm like, you know, if I'm in business, you know, if I'm a business guy, I'm going to focus on the demographic that's most likely to buy my product and sell my product. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not in business, but you know what? Why would we not focus on the audience that's most likely to say yes to Jesus and most likely to spread it to others? And we spend 80% of our time on the 20% that will that will you know produce the least as opposed to let's invest in this next generation let's mobilize them to reach their friends every great every great movement of god you look throughout history young people have been on the leading edge of that first great awakening you know saint saint patrick you know he was i mean that that guy was 16 when his heart broke for the irish hmm. people you know and you start going through history you see young people starting with jesus Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Matthew 17, 24 through 27, Peter, Jesus, and the disciples go into Capernaum, but only Peter and Jesus pay the temple tax. And if you cross-reference that with Exodus chapter 30, verse 14, the temple tax is only for those 20 years old and older. Hmm. So all the disciples are there, but only Peter and Jesus pay. So I, what I say is, if I'm reading that right, Jesus was a youth leader with one adult volunteer, Peter, and one rotten kid named Judas, and no budget. And with that youth group, he changed the world. Yeah, interesting. So how did how did you put shape to your desire to reach and train youth then? How did Dare to Share start formally? Yeah, so I planted planted a church with uh, with my buddy Rick Long that I went to school with at Arvada Christian School under, you know, both of us went to Yankees youth group, but just had that I had the youth itch, even though I was a preaching pastor and I loved expository preaching. I just was irritated by adults because I'm like, my goodness, they're 50 years old and still struggling with this stuff. I just got irritated with them. Teenagers I always felt bad for. 
I kind of had an affinity for teens. And so started dare to share on the side, you know, so I was pastoring and, you know, this church plant and doing dare to share on the side. And then both began to grow. The church began to grow and it grew with new conversion growth. I mean, 62% of our congregation came to Christ from people reaching people with the gospel. So that's exciting. So I didn't want to leave that. And then dare to share began to grow. You know, we started doing from seminars and workshops to conferences from, you know, 20, 30, 40 to 200, 300, 400. And I'm like, okay, this is starting to grow from Denver to other cities. I'm like, okay, this is getting exciting. Thought I could do both for the rest of my life. And then April 20th, 1999, some shots rang out, Columbine High School. And I was, I was promoting literally at that moment, I was promoting a dare to share tour called when all hell breaks loose on spiritual warfare and evangelism. And the pastor interrupted our meeting because I was there with a handful of youth leaders. And he said, you guys may want to stop and pray because all hell is broken loose at Columbine High School. Hmm. Uh, looks like there's shooters in the school. So we stopped and prayed. And over the next few days, you know, we, along with the rest of the United States and the world, heard about the Columbine High School massacre. You know, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold killed 12 students. One teacher turned the guns on themselves. Their goal was to kill hundreds. Yeah. Uh, but their big bombs failed to detonate. Um, so that was for me the wake up call because I knew a lot of the kids at Columbine High School. And um, my wife's a public school teacher in the same district. Mm-hmm. So um, made the decision July 4th to resign. Well, I resigned actually on July 4th, 1999, and went full time into Dare to Share and been doing it full time ever since. Mm-hmm. And that, that event probably had the teens listening to you more intently than they would have. Before. Yeah. Everybody, everybody was locked in because everybody, even there were school shootings before Columbine high school, sh- school shootings, obviously after, but what I tell people is somehow Columbine became the terrible yardstick by which every school shooting would be measured. Yeah. It really and, uh, and every year when we do, we do a full week training called lead the cause, uh, we just wrapped it up last week. We have hundreds of teenagers from across America that, we do a prayer experience. We actually go to Columbine High School in the school around the school. We tell the story because these kids were not born then, but we tell, we show video footage and then we we pray at the school, around the school, in the school, at, at the memorial. And we have them pray for their friends in their schools and, you know, the, this country and this world. And it's it's a very powerful experience. So Columbine is, is you know, the tragedy is woven in to the fabric of why we do what we do. There's an urgency because the question that haunted me, Charlie was where were all the Christian kids to reach the non-Christian kids? And there's, we need to send our students as ambassadors of hope into our schools mm-hmm. and into our communities. We need to start playing offense. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have school chapters in your ministry. We where do not. Go? So our whole philosophy, here's our, our mission is to energize the church to mobilize youth, to gospelize their world. So what we do is we provide tools and training to youth leaders. And a lot of those youth leaders do school chapters of their own uh, or work with groups like First Priority or Youth Christ or Student Venture or Decision Point. But they they basically mobilize uh, their own students with the, with the tools at their disposal uh, mm-hmm. to reach into their communities. But yeah. Okay, so we mentioned your your book, um, Unlikely Fighter, 
uh, what are some of the other, that's not so much a tool as it is your testimony autobiography, but what are some of the tools that you have? You have a, an app that helps share the gospel called life in six words. How does that work? Yeah. So we have unlikely fighter, which I'll just say real quickly, it's on audible. Um, and you can, or you can just get a hard copy. It 22 chapters long. The first 21 happened before I turned 16. So it's really about Mm. the power of the gospel that swept in my family. Mm. Uh, I wrote another book called gospelize your youth ministry and I-Z-E, Gospelize Your Youth Ministry. Gospelize is an old Spurgeon word, actually developed by Tyndale. as an old English word for evangelism, which is, mm-hmm. just sounds cooler. Gospelize Your Youth Ministry. How do you create a gospel-advancing, disciple-multiplying youth ministry fueled by the clear gospel? There's a chapter in there called uh, No More Party Poopers. That's what I call people that want to pervert the gospel, party poopers. Hmm. That's what happened with, with Paul in Acts 15. Uh, he got called out of Antioch, back to Jerusalem, 300 miles to straighten out the mess that the party poopers, you know, that required circumcision uh, to be saved among, you know, the Gentiles are getting saved. So there's all sorts of modern day versions of these party poopers, these legalistic Mm -hmm. Judaizers. Um, But um, so it's gospelize your youth ministry is based on how do you create a grace fueled disciple making movement through your youth group. Uh, we have an app, a face-sharing app called Life in Six Words. Uh, it's free on your app store. And Life in, the number six, Life in Six Words. And it's designed to where, you know, you show somebody and you ask them, how would you describe your life in six words? They choose six words out of 14 that best describe their life. And then you, you ask them why. Why would you choose those words? You hear their story. And then you share your six words. And that's how you share your testimony. And then you share God's six words, which is basically – uh, a gospel acrostic, God, our sins, paying everyone life. And it tells the story of the gospel. So it's a simple way. Um, and it's in 19 languages. You push the world icon. You can pull languages from Spanish to Italian to Korean. And uh, we work with rock solid theological translators with word of life primarily mm-hmm. um, to, to make sure we have an acrostic that's clear and that's cogent, but yeah, it's a free app life in six words. And uh yeah, lots of cool stuff. We do. The other thing I was going to say is we we do a annual uh, event called Dare to Share Live. Dare to Share Live is an evangelism training, inspiration training and equipping high quality. We invest a lot into it. Uh, and it's a day of global youth evangelism, November 11th. Uh, and it'll be in English and Spanish. Um, we have two different teams that we do this in. It's free of charge, and I'd put it up against any kind of online training you'd ever seen. High quality, fun, interactive. Uh, some of the best youth speakers in the Latin world, uh, Spanish-speaking world, and English-speaking world. And then we mobilize students for a day of global evangelism. So if you, oh. anybody listening is a youth group, just go to daretosharelive.org. This number two, daretosharelive.org. And sign up. Uh, and the only requirement is you got to be willing to take students out to share the gospel that day. This is not a watch party. This yeah. is a new party. So you'll get trained, equipped, and mobilized on November 11th. So they can watch you as a group, and then they go out afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. watch you as a group. It could be a parent with their, their teenagers and a group of their friends. could be a youth leader. Could you know? could do it church-wide. And that's November 11th, 2023. Will you be doing these every year? We've been doing them every year for the last seven years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's great. That's great. <clears throat> well, you know, ever since the age of eight, you've been straightening people out on the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, we appreciate that about you, that you're keeping the gospel clear after so many years and crossing so many different theological lines and church traditions and so forth. It's kind of hard to do sometimes, I'm sure. Maybe you get pushback sometimes. But... Oh, my goodness, I get pushback. Yeah, you can. I get accused of, you know, it's easy believism. And I'm like, you know, how easy is it to believe in a person I never met and trust him to take me to a place I've never been? It's so easy an eight-year-old kid can do it, and it's so hard a religious person could choke on it. Yeah. So yeah. Total misnomer, know. easy believism. Yeah. Sim simple believism, but not easy. Yeah, exactly. That's good. I, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> well, it's simple. Just believe. But, you know, it's not easy, like you say, to believe in something that happened 2000 years ago that applies to me today. And for all the other reasons that I'm a sinner, that there's a God that loves me, whatever people's hangups can be. So that's what they need to change their minds about, not not confess every sin that they can think of, because half the sins we do, we probably can't even remember. That didn't work for you. And asking Jesus and <clears throat> To your heart didn't work for you you finally understood I, I, that you just had to believe yeah you know I, i'll never forget when i was 19 i had the opportunity to preach at the denver rescue mission and you know they just getting everybody they can to preach because uh, you know they have to listen to a sermon if they want to get a cot that night right. and a and a meal so it's kind of like a captive audience done a few of so them. I, yeah and i'm sitting there thinking okay how do i get their attention so I was up there preaching. I go, how many of you guys have heard if you want to you want to be saved, you have to give up your drinking, your smoking, your alcohol, your sex, and all your sin? And I'm like, yeah, we heard that. I go, I want to tell you something different tonight. And they looked up. And the rescue mission staff who was sitting on the side looked up too, like, uh oh I said, you want to get saved. You keep all your cigarettes, keep all your drugs, keep all your alcohol, keep all your sex, and keep all your sin. And this one guy yelled out, amen. And <laughs> The rescue mission staff stood up because they, and they were conspiring how to take me off stage. And I go, you come to Christ with all your sin as an absolute sinner, totally unable to save yourself, totally unable to turn from your sin. And you kneel at the foot of the cross and you believe Jesus died in your place and paid the price for all your sin. And you trust in him alone to forgive you for those sins. And in that moment, you're forgiven for everything, past, present, and future. And his Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, and he makes you a new creation. And he'll give you the power and the desire to turn from those sins. But you can't have the power and desire until you have Jesus. And you can't have Jesus until you believe. Mm -hmm. And the rescue mission staff stepped back down, and, and seven men indicated faith in Christ that night. Mm -hmm. So it's the power of the simple, clear gospel that transformed those men that transformed my whole family, that transformed you and me, and that transformed every believer listening to this. Even those that may have, you know, over the course of time, uh, messed the gospel up. You go back into a time machine to that moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, it transforms you from the inside out, and it's simple faith in Christ. That's what Grace says. It's a free gift, right? It's salvation, but also it's a gift that keeps on giving. We, we're saved by grace, but we also live by grace. All by Amen. grace. Um, as the song Amazing Grace says, uh, grace will see us through, something like that. The words, I, I'd have to sing it to remember it. <laughs> yeah. And grace will see us home. Yeah. Grace will see us home. Well, Greg, we really appreciate your time today. Appreciate you sharing uh, 
about your life and your family. And but boy, it had a happy ending having them come to know the Lord and seeing what you're doing today. We appreciate the fact that you're standing firm for a clear gospel and training so many others to do that as well all over the world. So we'll put all the information there and people can hopefully tune in on November 11th and get your books and plug into your ministry, Dare to Share. That'd be great. The the, the ministry website is just daretoshare.org. Yeah, we'll put so that in. 75, 75 pieces of free curriculum for your youth group on there, including one we just finished on LGBTQ. How do you reach LGBTQ with the gospel? Yeah, you know, I was going to ask that question earlier, uh, but um, we got into other things. But I imagine the youth that you speak at speak to at the beginning of, uh, you know, around the turn of the century, I think, is when you're talking about starting your youth ministry. That that group had a lot of different issues than the groups we speak to today. The youth today, they're dealing with oh, all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff. You, you're still finding them responsive, though? I think kids are more hungry now than ever. Um, I think that actually COVID, I think in some sense did a favor to the next generation and made them desperate. And they're realizing they're lonely, they're isolated, they're anxious, they need something, they need someone. And so the evangelists I'm talking to is that are out there, like myself, are seeing more response in the last three years to the gospel than in, in all their ministry years combined. It's crazy. Well, that's good to know. Well, I hope the people listening here will uh, look you up and your resources and say a prayer for you as you continue to share the gospel. Dare. dare to Share continues to share the gospel and train youth. So I couldn't say it any clearer than Greg's just said it. It's by faith alone. Uh, nothing that we do, not turning from our sins, any particular sins, but just bringing them to the cross. Jesus paid for them there and made a way possible to get to him in heaven and eternal life by just believing in what he's done for us and that promise. So thanks a lot, Greg, for your time. We appreciate you. Thanks, Charlie. God bless. God bless. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.